0: Hallelujah. That's awesome. God doesn't mind if you applaud His kids. That's like craziness. So anyway, all right. We're in a series of teaching about the grace of God and being established in grace. Everybody say established in grace. Our theme verse has been Hebrews 13, verse 9. Let's read it again because... Every time I preach this, I go home and I'm on Facebook and then people are saying a bunch of strange things. And so it says, don't be carried away with different and strange doctrines. Don't be carried away with weirdness. Now, the temptation here is for me to create a list of all the weird doctrines out there, but that's, that doesn't actually work because the devil can invent them faster than I can list them for you. And what tends to happen is if I, I, don't, I don't like to preach against things or against specific teachings or teachers or books or whatever, even though there's one I really want to, but I'm... I'm I was telling Molly about it because it bothers me, but I'm getting over it, and hallelujah. And, and so, but I'm not going to say what it is because then people will go out and, and read it, so... The, the, <laughs> <laughs> so he says, he says don't, don't get carried away with a bunch of, of strange stuff stay focused on the fundamentals stay focused on the grace of God if you're bored with the grace of God you may not have understood the grace of God or you may have let your focus drift onto something else one of the reasons I like to emphasize the grace of God so much is I would like to be here 10 years from now. I'm serious. And, and what if I focus on me and my performance and my works and, and if I, have I done everything right and I'm, I'm thinking about myself and I'm trying to measure myself against myself or compare myself to somebody else or try to meet some sort of standard, after a while, that gets really discouraging. And it creates burnout. And I don't want to burn out, I want to burn on. Amen. To do that, I've got to understand grace. I really believe grace is what keeps the fire burning on the altar. Very many, very many revivals don't make it past one generation. And often that's because the, the legalism that's in, involved in all that makes it difficult for us to relate to our kids and therefore we can't pass on our values. I believe that understanding grace is the only safeguard against spiritual and relational burnout. When we're constantly trying to reach some standard, or if we're trying, constantly trying to hold people around us to some unreachable standard, eventually we and people will give up. I don't want to give up. I want to keep serving Jesus. So I want to understand grace. Last week, I emphasized that we live in a new covenant and that it's not like the old covenant. Let's go back to Hebrews chapter 8, verse, verse 9 and 10. So in verse 9, he says he's talking about the new covenant and he says it's not according to or not like the covenant that I made with their fathers in the day that I took them by the hand and led them out of Egypt. That's talking about the Mosaic law. He says, he says it's not like that covenant. So is the new covenant like the Mosaic law? No, because no, he says it's not like it. Now, I know that is in some way disturbing to people, and I'm not trying to... I made people upset last week, but and I understand all these scriptures about Jesus said that I came not to do away with the law but to fulfill it. But if I say to you I came not to do away with your mortgage but to fulfill your mortgage. What I mean is I'm going to I'm going to fulfill that contract. I'm going to pay it off. I haven't I haven't abolished it. I haven't I haven't like made you default on it. I have, I have fulfilled your obligation to make that monthly payment. And now that contract doesn't apply to you in the same way that it used to so because it's been fulfilled. Awesome. Awesome. Now, I also know that Jesus said that if, if we teach, if we don't teach the commandments that will be considered least in the, in the kingdom. I, I went over all this in a lot of detail in this series called Making Waves. If you go back on our website, it's on there. I can't rehash all that. I'm, I'm not going to rehash all that right now. I could, but I'm not going to. I want to use powerful language. Nobody's stopping me, but I don't want to focus on that right now. But why did he say that? It's because the, the, the moral principles of the law are still true in that God's still not okay with murder, right? Right? what's what's been done away is not is not the fact that there's a moral standard what's been done away is this contractual obligation between god and man where god is punishing people for their sins and so in let's just read it again he says it's not like this covenant why not because in that covenant i was punishing people for their sins because they continued not in my covenant, and I regarded them not, says the Lord. Okay, what that means is that God He made this contractual agreement with the nation of Israel, which they didn't keep, and therefore He wasn't able to bless them and show them favor. And God wanted to bless them and show them favor. The point then is he's got to create a different kind of contractual relationship so that the blessing can come. Amen. It can't be based on people's performance because we've already demonstrated that doesn't work. You aren't you you're not a better performer than the nation of Israel. I'm sorry to break it to you. You're not. That's what that's what Israel demonstrated to us is there had to be a different kind of of covenant, not based on our performance. And he says, this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days. I will put my laws in their mind and write them on their hearts. So he says, I'm going to make an inward relationship, an inward change. I'll be to them a God and they will be to me a people. So it's 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 not antinomianism, which is lawlessness. It's that there's not something external controlling me. It's that I have been born again and I have an inward change on the inside of me and I want to do the right thing. I don't always do the right thing, but my heart has been changed. And he says, I will be to them a God, and they will be to my people, and they will not teach every man his neighbor and every man his brother, saying, Know the Lord, for they'll all know me from the least to the greatest. That's saying I'm doing away with the priestly intermediary system. You don't don't need to come to me to talk to God. I mean, you can benefit from my relationship to God, but please don't come like, give me a prayer and say, can you please tell God that? That's, you just tell God. God tried to do that with the nation of Israel, and they're like, we don't want to talk to you. Talk to Moses, and then we'll talk to Moses, and there'll be an intermediary. We'll talk more about that in a second. But then he says this, for I will be merciful to their unrighteousness, and I will remember their sins and iniquities no more. That's the provision of the New Covenant. Instead of punishing you for your sins, God has forgiven you. It's a lot different. So the default state in the New Covenant is that your sins are forgiven and God is not punishing you. Okay, so let's all say this with me. God, God is, not is not punishing me punishing for my sin. For my sin. Amen. Period. Period. Now, you would think that that would be good news. <laughs> I mean, I think it's good news because <laughs> I've done some sinning. Okay? But people believe that the only thing that will restrain somebody from sin is punishment. And if you believe that, I'm concerned about your ability to have a healthy relationship with anybody. Because if the only thing... If the only thing that keeps me from having an affair is, is the fear that my wife will beat me up, I have a problem. I don't, I, I don't you know, if, if I had an affair, do you know my wife would forgive me? I'm, I have like 100% confidence that she would. So I don't, I don't fear punishment in that area. What keeps me from, from the sin? I don't want to, because I love my wife, and I don't want to grieve her. I don't want to do that to my family. Grace is not a license to sin, it's a permission to enter into a relationship with God that is free from the threat of punishment. Many people don't know how to have a relationship without fear of punishment. You'll ask, "Well, how can I get people to do what I want?" Then, because <laughs> I'm used to emotionally blackmailing people until they do what they, what I want. Yeah. Is that too honest? <laughs> and the, the answer is, you you can't get people to do what what you want. Unless they love you and they want to. Well you say that's risky, yeah it is. And that's what God did in Jesus. He made a wager, he made a bet on himself. And what he bet was that he was love and that he was better than you could possibly imagine and if he could just get the religious confusion out of the way and you met him, you would want to be in relationship and serve him. Because you would realize that serving the devil is a dead end. Yeah. Yeah. It's not fun. It's not, it's not fun. I mean, what? I mean, I, you see people serving out there living like crazy and serving the devil. I mean, you think that's great? It might be fun for five minutes, and then your life falls apart, and your teeth fall out. and I mean... <laughs> your hair might fall out serving Jesus, but... <laughs> That's just if you plant a church. No. <laughs> anyway. <laughs> so so God God believed that if he could get people to see him clearly, they would voluntarily choose him, and then the relationship would be authentic. So God is not punishing people for sin. It's, it's over. That part, of the, that part of history is done. Now, because there is no threat of punishment, prayer in the New Covenant looks different. That's what we've been trying to do is talk about prayer in the New Covenant. Well, if God isn't punishing people, then it would make sense that I don't really need to pray that God would not punish people. Me included. Let's read Romans 8. Now, this is different than in the Old Testament, because if you read the Old Testament, uh, like lots of times, God's about to destroy Israel, and Moses says, hey, don't do that. Remember remember the covenant. Remember Abraham and all this. And, and God repents, and He doesn't destroy everybody. Another time, there's Sodom and Gomorrah, and, and Abraham's arguing with God. Not arguing, but he's, he's um, negotiating with God and saying, well, will you destroy Sodom if there's 50 people, and then 45, and 40, and et cetera? And so, he's trying to stave off the judgment of God. But look at Romans 8, and 34. It says, Who will lay anything to the charge of God's elect? It is God that justifies. Wow. Well, okay, what's that mean? Who is going to bring an accusation against you as a Christian? Will God? No. no, because God's the one that's seeking to justify you. Amen. So, so the the picture now. There's problems with this picture. Augustine was the first person that came up with it because his dad was a lawyer, and he pictured heaven like a courtroom. And this creates lots of problems. God is not primarily a, a judge; he's primarily Father. But but this picture does help a little bit. And so, in the in the courtroom of heaven, the The accusing attorney is the devil. (laughs) Revelation calls him the accuser of the brethren, right? So he's the one bringing the charges. And it says God is the one. God, not just Jesus, but the Father. They're the one that's your defense attorney. It's contra their purposes to bring up the stuff you have done wrong. They're trying to get an acquittal. Therefore, saying all the stuff you've done bad, is, it's a terrible strategy. If you have a defense attorney that is attacking you, you should fire them. God is seeking to justify you. And in fact, He already has. It's already over. The verdict is in. Guess what? It said not guilty. So quit freaking out so much. It is God that justifies. Who is he that condemns? Who is condemning? Well, Romans 8, 1 says, There is no condemnation of those that are in Christ Jesus. It is Christ that died, yea, rather, that is risen, who is even at the right hand of God, who makes intercession for us. Is Jesus condemning you? No. No, Because it's contrary to his purposes. I know this is, I mean, you know, I grew up in church and I I thought the primary purpose of church was to make me feel bad and that the primary feeling I meant, what was meant to feel in God's presence was guilt and shame. Now, if if you don't know Jesus and you're a sinner, you you need to recognize, I'm a sinner. I need help. I've screwed up. But then you come to God and you come to Jesus and he washes you and he cleanses you. And, and he takes away all that stuff. And now your sin's gone and you're forgiven. So to maintain that posture of, of guilt and shame and all that, it doesn't make sense. It denies what Jesus did for you. So I don't think we need to spend any time trying to ward off judgment because God isn't judging you. Now, if you've seen people pray that or you've prayed that, don't feel bad. And we don't need to remember last week. We we aren't the prayer police, so I don't need anybody going to revival meetings and stuff and and telling people how they're praying wrong, or if you do that, don't mention our church. <laughs> I remember I told ta- remember I told you not to do that. Okay, we're not we're talking about how we deal with stuff, not other people. Okay, now why why do people think we need to ward off this judgment? It, it comes, look back at, well, just real quickly, Job nine thirty three. If you read the story of Job, he, he's complaining about the fact that all these bad things are happening to him, and he thinks it's, that God's his problem, really the devil's his problem. But in Job 9, 33, he's, he's saying, there isn't, there's in the King James it says, neither is there any daysman betwixt us, but this is better. It says, neither is there any mediator between us that he might lay his hand upon both of us. When when Job was alive, he did not have a covenant between him and God. Moses hadn't been born yet, and he might have been a contemporary of Abraham. It's hard to know. But nevertheless, Job personally had no covenant with God. That was his main problem. And he says, there's nobody to lay one hand on on God and another hand on me and help us come together and understand what's, what's going on. Later, Hebrews describes Moses as a mediator. When Job was alive, there was no mediator. But Moses was one, and Abraham was one. That's what was happening when Moses was trying to to get God to quit judging the nation of Israel. Now, how many of you believe Moses was good at his job? I mean, do you think you're more righteous than Moses? Probably not, right? I mean, Moses, Moses was amazing. All right, but the result of Moses' mediation really was that thousands of people died by the wrath of God. I mean, the, the ground opened up and it swallowed the sons of Korah. The, the day the law was given, 3,000 people died. Fire came out from the altar and consumed Nadab and Abihu. There was lots of judgment. Moses was trying to, to mediate... And Moses was really good at it as far as a human, but the result still was that lots of people were being burned by the fire of God and, and bad... I mean, people were dying left and right. Yeah. How many of you think Moses, Abraham was a good mediator? Yeah. He tried to mediate for Sodom and Gomorrah, and you know what happened? The fire of God fell from heaven and consumed that place. All those people died. Hmm. That's sobering, Right? Okay, now, let's read the New Testament Scripture about this. 1 Timothy 2 and verse 5, it just says this. 1 Timothy 2, 5 says, There is one mediator, one mediator, between God and man, the man, Christ Jesus. Are you the mediator between God and man? No. What's that mean? It means God already brought the two parties together in Jesus. He already reconciled the whole world to Himself. He already made peace with man. He's not judging or punishing man. Therefore, you don't have to. And we ought to celebrate that because likely we'd do a terrible job. Because everybody in the New Te- Old Testament that tried to do it Killed a lot of people. Is that too honest? That's that's real life. So so I'm not trying to be critical, but but this whole thing where we're afraid that God's judging America or judging so-and-so or judging me, and we're going to stand in the gap and we're going to mediate. No. There's only one mediator. Jesus took care of it. So, in my prayer life, personally, now again, we don't need to go to some other church and tell them to quit praying how they're praying or whatever. That's not what this is about. What I'm saying is for you personally, you don't need to spend any time, I don't spend any time trying to stave off the wrath of God. I don't worry about it because Jesus took care of it. So I spend zero time doing that. I spend a little time Asking for stuff. We're talking about prayer. I don't know if anybody noticed that, but we are talking about (laughs) prayer and how we pray in the New Covenant. So there's lots of scriptures. I gave you a bunch there. James 1.5 says, do any of you lack wisdom? Let him ask of God who gives to all men liberally and upbraideth not. So is it okay to ask God for stuff? Yeah, but the primary thing, if you read all the prayers in the New Testament, Paul says this same thing in Ephesians 1, 17 and 18. He says, I, I beseech the Lord that He would give unto you the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of, of Him. It's, it's asking for wisdom. It's asking for knowledge. It's asking to understand stuff better. The point is, in the New Testament, we're really not trying to get God to give us something. We're trying to get understanding of what we've already been given. I'll show you this in second Peter. Let's, this is a I realize that I don't think I've ever preached on this verse here, but this is I mean an amazing verse of scripture. Second Peter 1 verse 3 says, according as his divine power has given unto us all things that pertain unto life and godliness. okay. How many things have been given unto you that pertain to your life and living a godly life for Jesus? It says all all the things. All the things. What thing? All the things. Do you know what all means in Greek? All. (laughs) All, 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 (laughs) All the things have been given unto us that pertain to life and godliness. Now... Why don't, if that's true, Pastor, why don't I currently see them? Read the second half of the verse. Through the knowledge of Him that has called us to glory and virtue. So everything is already in my bank account, but the way I access it is by knowing Him. And that's why Paul prayed that we would have wisdom, that we would have the revelation of who He is, the the spirit of wisdom and revelation in the knowledge of Him. Ephesians 3, that we would know the height, the depth, the length, and the breadth and, and experience the love of Christ, which passes mere intellectual knowledge and be filled with all the fullness of God. Why do we pray those things? It's, it's, because, it's because everything's been given to me in Christ and I just, need to, I just need to know Him so I can figure out how to access it. I know this isn't quite as fun because it takes away all the striving. (laughs) (laughs) But it's the truth. Your striving, your your religious zeal is not availing. Now, I love zeal. Don't, don't let go of his zeal, but direct it towards knowing him, not trying to get something from him. Not trying to put him, you know, he's not, he's not in heaven where we got to get a whole bunch of people to convince him to do something. He's on your side. The mediation has already occurred. Instead of, so, so we don't spend any time staving off the wrath of God. We spend some time asking for things, primarily asking for wisdom. But what do you do with the majority of your prayer life? Well, if you understand what we've been saying so far, then, then what Paul says in Philippians 4.4 4 makes a lot of sense. And what he says is, rejoice in the Lord always. And again, I say, rejoice. rejoice. You know, if you if you realize that Everything's been given to you in Jesus, and God isn't mad at you, and He's not judging you. And even if you screw up, He's not going to be mad. And even if you mess something up, you can still you can go back, and you can, God will help you fix it, and He'll redeem the situation. If you start to understand that and think that way and know that God's for you not against you, you'll start to be happy, and you'll start to give thanks to God. And you'll spend the majority of your prayer life being thankful for what God has already done. And that's what the Scripture tells us to do. Now, I used to read that Scripture, and I thought, how on earth can you do that? Because I thought God was against me, and I thought God was punishing me and doing negative things to me and causing problems in my life. And when you think that way, it sure is a lot harder to rejoice. (laughs) All right, everybody okay? Now, what do we do about a problem? Well, if there's a problem in your life, then you use your God-given authority to speak to the problem and command it to leave. Mark eleven twenty-three 23 says, Whosoever shall say unto this mountain, Be thou removed, and be cast into the sea, and shall not doubt in his heart, but believe that those things which he saith shall come to pass, he shall have whatsoever he saith. What's, what's that mean? It means just, just spe- use your authority, speak to the problem, and, and tell it to leave. That's how you pray. So, now what if it doesn't leave? Well, just stand and keep believing God. I yeah. just don't stress. Just don't stress out about it. But don't start get to be confused and think that, that God's punishing you or God's mad at you or whatever. Life is confusing sometimes, but God is good. So we talk to the mountain about God, not the, not God about the mountain. Now, now that, sometimes people take that so seriously that they, like, won't ever tell a pastor or they won't ever tell God about their problems. If you read David, he tells God about his problems all the time. That's fine. But you don't live there and you don't rehearse your problem forever to where your problem gets so big that that's all you can see. And many times people end up in some sort of spiritual warfare where you're... Where you're, you're shadow boxing something that you've you've magnified by focusing on it sometimes the best thing you can do to the devil is just ignore him he's kind of like a small child that wants attention all right I'm going to end on this kind of a silly question so there's the so I, I said to you that there's the the, I believe the grace of God and the, and the revival fire of God are meeting, right? So in, in, the, in the grace camp, you have people saying, we can't pray, come Holy Spirit, because that, that denies the reality that the Holy Spirit's already with us. Then in the revival camp, we have people saying, well, when we pray, come Holy Spirit, cool stuff happens. And so how do we reconcile that, and, and is it legal to pray that prayer? Well, first of all, I'm not the prayer police, and so it's a little, I think it's a little bit of a silly dispute, but I do think that I'll, I wanted to weigh in on it so that you could understand what's actually happening. Uh, should you pray that prayer or not? So usually when I answer, ask questions like that, the answer is yes. Okay. Okay. <laughs> Okay. First Samuel. Uh, first. I think I'm too honest as a pastor. I need to quit. But anyway, 1 Samuel 16. 1 Samuel 16, 14. In the Old Testament, the Holy Spirit, just like all the other blessings of God, was contingent on the people's performance. His presence could lift if you screwed something up. This is why in 1 Samuel 16, 14, it says, the Spirit of the Lord departed from Saul. Departed from Saul. This is why David in the Psalms said, take not thy Holy Spirit from me. Why did he say that? Because he'd screwed up and he was repenting and he was hoping that God wouldn't judge him. That's what you did in the Old Testament. But now, let's read John fourteen sixteen. 16, which says, I will give you another comforter. God's, Jesus is leaving, and he says, I'm going to give you another comforter. And the word another means another of the same kind. He's just the same kind of comforter. And he says that he may abide with you for how long? Forever. Forever. What if you screw up? He's still there. Why do, you think, why do you think you can grieve the Holy Spirit in the New Testament? It's because He stays there and watches your dumb decisions. <laughs> <laughs> he loves you the whole time. He's not even mad, but He's like, oh God, I wish you hadn't done that. That's going to be a problem. We're going to have to fix that. <laughs> <laughs> but he's not leaving you. That's right. He's not going to. He's, Jesus said, I'll never leave you or forsake you. Right. I'll never leave you or forsake you. <laughs> so in the New Testament, you don't need to pray. Now, I know what the song, it's a you know, beautiful song, but you don't need to pray, take not the Holy Spirit from me. Because right. he's promised he'll never leave. Okay, so, if you're praying, come Holy Spirit, because you think that the Holy Spirit is in heaven, and and He's got to get through your sin and a whole bunch of mess up here in order to come down here, I think you're living on the wrong side of the cross. But, most of the people today that are praying that don't actually think that, if you actually listen to them, which... Some people don't have the patience to do, but if you listen to to the revivalists, what they're usually talking about is the truth that the Holy Spirit lives eternally within us, but He is not always flowing out. Have you, as a Christian, ever manifested a Spirit that was not the Holy Spirit? You know, the Holy Spirit, the fruit of the Spirit, right, is love and joy and peace. Anybody ever manifested something that wasn't that? Okay, what's that mean? You can have Holy Ghost in here, but you might not be yielding to Him. You might not be letting Him out. In John 4, Jesus says that the Holy Spirit is like a well on the inside of you, a well springing up to eternal life. A well is stationary, it's inside you. But then later in 738, He says that the Holy Spirit can be like rivers of life flowing out of you. They're different. One brings life to me, it ensures my, you know, connection to God, and my eternity in heaven and stuff. But the other one's about other people. And I want the Holy Spirit to flow out and affect other people and help people. That's what revival is. I'm believing for an outpouring. How many of you are oh, believing yeah. for an outpouring? Woo. The outpouring's going to come from heaven. But do you know where heaven is? It's in you. Yeah. That's where it's going to come from. Yep. <laughs> so, if I'm praying, Come Holy Spirit, because I believe God's in heaven and it's my job to pray to convince him to come down, I don't think that's a good prayer. But if I'm praying, Come Holy Spirit, secure in the knowledge that he lives in me, but I'm giving him permission to come out and manifest in some way, then I'm thinking from the New Testament. So here's an amazing truth. You actually can't tell what people are thinking based on what they say and what they do. And we often think that we can, you know, in the grace movement, there's a lot of people that are grace Nazis, they're graces, and they're, they're, you know... Greg Moore said that they've got their grace guns. That's law. That's law. They're telling people that people are under the law. And they're looking at people's external behavior and saying that they're under the law because of the way they behave. Somebody, somebody could accuse me of being a legalist because I read the Bible through every year and I have a plan. I have a Bible reading plan. You can't do that under grace. Well, Yeah, yeah you can. I have a Bible reading plan. Molly and I read the Bible every year. You know why? Because I believe in reading the whole Bible, and I've noticed if I don't have a plan, I will not read Lamentations. Very good point. I mean, when's the last time you've read Lamentations? I've re- I read it every year. Okay, now, how do you... Legalism and grace, it's not what I do it's why I do it it's why I do it if I read the Bible every year because I'm trying to impress all of you and I think that that will increase the favor of God on my life and that God will move more in my life if I read the Bible every year and if I fear the judgment of God if I think I miss a day and then God will be mad at me that's all legalism that's law. But you can't tell that from the outside, can you? That's not why I read the Bible every year. I just do it because I love the Bible and I love Jesus, and I, and I believe in discipline. I believe in good habits. Yeah. I brush my teeth every night and floss. Yeah. I do it religiously because I don't want, like I said, I don't want my teeth to fall out. <laughs> 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 but if they did, that wouldn't be the judgment of God, all right? It'd be, it'd be you know, something else. Okay, but, but I, I, read the, I do that every night, and Molly and I read the Bible every night. Read the Bible plan. So it's, it's, you know, tithing is the same way, giving. Like, I don't tithe religiously. If you're tithing because you think you're going to be cursed... If you don't tithe, that's under the Old Testament. You are not going to be cursed for not tithing. You aren't going to be punished. Well, you can't say that, Pastor. People will quit giving. Well, no. I've been saying that since we started. And people still give. You know why? Because they love Jesus and because they want to support what we're doing. Now, I give personally at least 10% of my income every month. I do that because, again, I like discipline. I see it as a principle. And I realize how on earth am I going to give less than they gave in the Old Testament? I mean, I want to at least give. And then, and then I also recognize that the ministries I support and stuff in the church, it helps them with budgeting if they know how much I'm, you know, given or whatever. So, but I don't fear the judgment of God. I do it because I want to. So can you tell externally whether somebody is, is under legalism or under grace based on what they're doing? No. You really can't. Now, sometimes you might be tempted to think that you could. I have a friend that's a, that's a Catholic priest, and he does a whole lot of rituals. And you'd be th- tempted to think, well, he's under a lot of legalism. But when I talk to him about it, he does all that stuff. It's, it's, an it's an authentic way he connects with God. Now, I'm not saying that about everybody that does all those rituals, but for him, it's, it's authentic. So I'm, what am I going to do? I'm not going to be mad about that. So we're going to de-religiousize everybody, including us, including me. I was trying to get unreligious this trip that we went on. So anyway, it was good. I let some guy massage me, which was a stretch for me. (laughs) I probably shouldn't have told that. Let's all stand up.